The following is a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. And I would invite you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Please meet me in Romans chapter 12. We're still in this marvelous section, verses 9 to 21, where we are working our way through 25 divinely inspired principles for the gospel-shaped life. This is hands down the, the, the most points I've ever had in a series. But the joy of expository preaching is you just take what the next text is. You just work verse by verse through the text. Uh, the text of Scripture forms for us both the content of our messages and the structure of our messages. And so we are slowly working our way through this list of 25 instructions for what the gospel-shaped life and gospel-shaped relationships look like. We've seen 17 of them already, and we're going to take another couple weeks to work through these. Let me read the text again. Please follow along, starting in verse 9 of Romans chapter 12. Paul writes, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him, and if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Paul wants us to understand in this section that the gospel of Jesus Christ is meant to impact how you live. The gospel is not something that just saves you. The gospel is something that transforms you. And that when you genuinely come to the Lord Jesus Christ, your life will be different. When Christ invades your life, He will transform it. He will renovate it. He will make you different from the inside out. Christ does not come into a person's life and not change a person. We need to understand this, especially in light of the movement a number of years ago in the non-lordship movement, which said that basically you could accept Jesus as your Savior, but not necessarily as Lord and there be no life change in you. That is patently false. We see this often with people believing that they believed in Jesus when they were three years old and now live like the world, and yet still believe that they're saved when there's been no life change in them. That is not genuine conversion. When Christ comes into a life, He changes you. He transforms you. He changes your priorities, your your attitudes, your desires. He affects your relationships in your family, at work, and in the church. 
And this list in verses 9 to 21, Paul tells us specifically how the gospel changes your life. We saw last time, last Sunday, uh, four more evidences of the gospel-shaped life. We looked at verse uh, 14 last week, and it was number 14. We said that you need to have a friendly response to those who persecute you. Not only are we believers not to curse our enemies, we're actually to bless them. And then we saw number 15 in verse 15 that we are to have a joyful collaboration. We're to rejoice with those who rejoice. We're to enter into the the joys of fellow believers and we're to celebrate God's blessing in, in their life and we're not to be envious and jealous when God blesses someone else. We're to be thrilled when God blesses somebody. Number 16 from last week was a sympathetic compassion. It's the end of verse 15. You're to weep with those who weep. When Christ changes your heart, you're going to have a sorrow and a sympathy for fellow believers when they're in trials and they're in difficulties. You're going to enter into those sorrows and those difficulties, and you're going to have an empathy for them. Number 17 from last week is the beginning of verse 16. We called it an impartial attitude. An impartial attitude. The beginning of verse 16 says, be of the same mind toward one another. And I regret last week that I didn't devote enough time to that one. There's a sense in which every one of these needs a full sermon, but I feel like I shortchanged you a little bit last week. And so I'm going to repent of that, and we're going to go back, and we're going to start today with this one, uh, because I think it deserves a little bit more attention. So what I want to do is I I just want to pick up from last week, number 17, and we're going to start with that, and then we'll give you two more, and we're just going to be in verse 16 this week. That should not surprise you. Uh, One verse... And there is so much to say here. I gave you last week a warning, and I feel like I need to give you a warning again this morning. Paul's going to step on your toes. Paul's going to get in your kitchen. And Paul is going to confront your pride and my pride in how we deal with fellow believers. Let's get into this. Number 17, an impartial attitude. And as I said, I introduced it last week, but I want to dig a little bit deeper this week. So verse 16 begins with this little phrase, be of the same mind toward one another. This is a summons to unity. This is a summons to unity in our thinking and in our relationships and in our fellowship. It's a call to be like-minded in how we treat one another. The NIV says it this way. He says, live in harmony with each other. And the, the tense of the verb here is a present tense, meaning it's an ongoing, habitual, continual practice that we're to engage in. When you look at your life, and when I look at my life as believers, there ought to be a pattern of ongoing continual harmony in our relationships with fellow believers. There ought to be a spirit of unity. There ought to be a spirit of harmony in our fellowship and in our church and at Maranatha Bible Church. There ought to be a a, a tenor or an attitude of spiritual harmony. In other words, we could say it this way, that Christians ought to be easy to get along with. Are you? Are you easy to get along with? Because that's what the gospel does in your life. When when Christ comes in and changes you, there ought to be a softness in your heart that makes you 
easy to get along with. That doesn't mean you don't hurt each other and you at times offend each other and at times sin against each other. Of course, that, that all happens. But the general flavor of your life as a believer ought to be one who gets along well with others. Psalm 133, verse 1. The psalmist says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. So I ask you this morning, are you dwelling in unity? Are you dwelling in unity with the fellow believers sitting around you this morning, within your family, within your church family, within your relationships? As you look at your sphere of influence, do you generally see a spirit of unity in those relationships? It's critical we understand this. And I, I touched based on this a little bit last week, that Satan wants to attack the church. And he will oftentimes do this through relationships. This is his M.O. He hates God. He hates the church. Therefore, he hates God's people. And Satan's M.O., his, his plan of action is to create friction between you and another believer. That's how he's going to sow seeds of discord within the church. That's how he's going to aim to divide us and, and cause dissension in the ranks. He wants to divide and conquer us. And here at Maranatha Bible Church, it's likely not going to be through false teaching. You have a group of solid elders firmly committed to the Word of God and sound in their theology. I am not concerned much for false teaching finding its way into our church. But every one of us has a target on our backs when it comes to relationships. And Satan's looking for ways to sow little seeds of discord into our church through the problems and the conflicts that erupt between believers. I spent some time this week kind of thinking about this, and I, I came up with an anatomy of division within the church. Let me just kind of walk through with you six stages of the anatomy of division within a church. Stage one is the hurt stage. And at stage one is where something happens between you and another believer. There's a disagreement. There's a conflict. There's a misunderstanding. There, there's somehow you get sideways with another believer, maybe not over major doctrinal issues, but it's about a preference issue or a perception about how something should be done. And so there's a little hurt that occurs here, and, and suddenly there's a seed of discord that is sown now because there's this wound in your heart. That's stage one. Stage two is the bitterness stage. And at stage two is when you, you begin to think about this and you mull this over and you, and you dwell on it and it's on your mind. And when you go to bed, it's on your mind. And you wake up in the middle of the night, it's three in the morning and it's the first thing that pops into your mind. And you wake up in the morning and it's still there. It's on your mind. You're thinking about it. You're dwelling on it. And you begin to nurse that grudge and you stew on it. There's a growing animosity in your heart and a root of resentment begins to grow. That's stage two. Stage three is the rationalization stage. The rationalization stage where you begin to justify your actions. I was right. They were wrong. They totally misread me. They are, they are, they are completely off their rocker. I'm right. You begin to justify yourself and rationalize and, and put the blame on the other person. You begin to defend yourself. Stage four is the avoidance stage. You avoid the person. 
It's just a whole lot easier to avoid them. You don't want to be around them. And so maybe you don't even show up to church for a while because you just don't want to see that person. And, and if that's not the case, you come, but, but you don't make eye contact and you don't fellowship and you don't talk and you walk way around so you don't have to talk to each other and engage each other. This is the, the avoidance stage. Stage five is the collaboration stage. You begin to muster support for your side. You begin to talk to a few people. Can you believe what they did? This is how I responded. Can you believe what they did to me? That's how they treated me. And so you suddenly begin to sow seeds now within the church and other people. You tell others to build a coalition of people who will defend your position. You want people in your corner. Stage six is the division stage. Now there's broken relationships. Now there's groups on different sides of this issue. There's now factions that have resulted, and now there's a, a large crack within the church that begins to, to, to grow bigger and bigger and bigger, and then when that happens, division in the church is inevitable. It happens all the time. How many churches haven't come out of that kind of scenario? We call that a church splant. Not a church plant. It's a church split that resulted in a church plant. It's a church splant. I don't think that's the Beth method. I don't think that's how God wanted us to plant churches. It's deadly. And that kind of division takes place all the time within the church. And how does it start? Go back to stage one. It goes back to hurts, ways that we've offended each other that are unresolved, and that, that grows, and it fractures the church, and it demoralizes the church, and it discourages the church, and that's exactly what Satan wants to do, and it's what he's going to try and do here. I love what Jay Adams says about this. He says the squabbles that so often are seen in the church are most debilitating to her work. Much time and energy that could be utilized in the Lord's work is wasted instead on infighting, wounded by one another, weak and discouraged by battles among themselves. The soldiers of Christ grimly limp forth against the enemy. No wonder their spirits are crushed. No wonder they are glad if they can but hold their own. No wonder the ring of victory is seldom heard. It is not the enemy who is defeating us. It is we ourselves, end quote. He's right. Oftentimes, it's we ourselves who are defeating ourselves in the church because of an inability or an unwillingness to resolve conflict with one another, and you've seen it. Some of you have been here for more than 20 years, and you've seen it here at this church. There was a split 20 years ago. Our church in Spokane that we spent a number of years at, nine, ten years, grew out of a church split and even after 10 years of being at the church, there were still hurts and still divisions and, and some families that were still divided in the split. As far as I can tell here at Maranatha, we are not in danger of that. I'm not preaching against an issue. Please understand, I'm, I'm not on a hobby horse, and I don't know of any uh, glaring issues amongst us. There is a spirit of unity and harmony and oneness here, but let me say, I am not naive to believe that it can't happen. 
Because in the midst of 250 people, there are thousands of relationships that are capable here. And sometimes if we just get off with each other and we get a little sideways and our pride gets hurt and we begin to nurse these resentments that occur within us, selfishness and anger and personal preferences begin to take over. And suddenly, before you know it, we're heading down that trajectory and that anatomy of division within a church. It doesn't take much. You ever seen a picture of a rock? split by a tree. One little seed got into that crack and grew and grew and grew and the root split that rock apart and it didn't start that way. It started very small. And so we need to be vigilant. We need to be diligent. We need to work hard at the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And that's exactly what Paul is dealing with here in verse 16. Noticing in the first phrase, he says, be of the same mind toward one another. This is a call to unity in our thinking and unity in our fellowship and unity in our, our relationships. It's a call to be like-minded, to be harmonious, to strive for unity. This is not a call to uniformity. And just look around. There is no uniformity here. Just look. There's all kinds of diversity sitting around you. Older, younger, taller, shorter, all kinds of different differences that dis display the fact that we are not a homogenous unit. We're all different and we're all distinct and we're all having different values and different things that we bring to the table. It doesn't mean uniformity, but it means unity. And so this is the, the issue that Paul is getting at. He wants us to be of the same mind towards one another. Now, this is one of Paul's favorite phrases. And I want you to go over to chapter 15, verse 5. I think I did this last week, but let me just show you again that this is, this is one of Paul's favorite ways of describing the kind of unity that ought to take place within a church. Verse 5 of Romans 15, he says, Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another, according to Christ Jesus. That's the same phrase, the same word. Be of the same mind. Be united. Be harmonious. Go back to Romans chapter 12. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. You don't need to turn there, but just listen. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. He says, brethren, rejoice. Be made complete. Be comforted. Be like-minded. Live in peace. It's a call to unity. How about Philippians chapter 2? You know it very well. Philippians 2 begins with these words. Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. He's saying there is fellowship in the Spirit. There is affection for one another. There is a compassion within the church. Now then live that out and be of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit and intent on one purpose. You understand that we're all after the same thing? At least we ought to be. We are united in purpose. What is our purpose? To glorify Christ, to magnify His name, to uphold His glory, to extend His name through the nations. We're all committed to the same thing. It's what we all want. And if that's the case, 
the best way that we're going to manifest that to the church is by our unity, to the world rather, is by our unity, by our ability to get along with one another and serve one another and be of the same mind towards one another. You've probably heard A.W. Tozier illustrate it this way. He said, if you had 4,000 pianos and you tried to tune them each to each other, there's no way that you could do it. But if you had one tuning fork, you could all tune them to that one tuning fork. And there's 250 individuals sitting here this morning, all with different interests and perceptions and, and preferences, but we are all committed to one thing, the Lord Jesus Christ and His glory. That's the purpose that defines us. That's what unites us. And because of that, there are so many instructions in the New Testament about this. We don't have time to look at each one of them, and don't even turn there, but just let me, let me just list for you. Just listen to some of these admonitions from the New Testament on the importance of unity within the church. Matthew 5, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, right? Matthew chapter 5, he goes on to later and say, leave your gifts at the altar. If you know someone has something against you, it's better for you to go and resolve that issue with that individual than it is for you to come here and worship God knowing that there's still an issue between you and a brother or sister in Christ. Leave your gift at the altar. Go make it right. 1 Corinthians 1, 10 he says, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, I exhort you that you all agree and that there be no divisions, no schismata. We'll get our word schisms. Let there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Ephesians chapter 4. He says, be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That's verse 3. Be diligent. Work hard. Beloved, listen, this is not natural. It doesn't come by coasting. It doesn't come by just kind of going through life together and just, just flowing with the flow. It doesn't come that way. It takes some effort. It takes some diligence. It takes some, some hard work on our part to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. You have to put forth some effort in this. Can I just say it this way? Listen, you can't ever get to a point in the church where you say, well, I guess that relationship's just over. <laughs> That's done. So much for that. It was good while it lasted. See ya. See in heaven, if that's your attitude, you have missed the heart of Christ. Paul says, guard it, protect it, keep it, maintain it, work at it. Why? Ephesians chapter 4, he goes on to say, because there's one body and there's one spirit and you were called in one hope and there's one Lord and there's one faith and there's one baptism and there's one God and Father who is all over all and through all and in all. There's a unity in the Godhead and there ought to be a unity in the reflection of the Godhead, namely his people, the church. Philippians 1.27 he says, I hear that you are standing firm in one spirit and with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Striving together, that implies work and effort. There's a, a diligence that comes with this. There's a, an effort that is required to strive together in one spirit for the faith of the gospel. It's an interesting little word in Philippians 1.27, striving together. It's the word soon altheo, where we get our word athletics. And the idea is a team striving together and working together for a singular cause, like a football team. All working together to get that 
football in the end zone. It's moving, it's working, it's contributing. They're all a part of a team, and the effort is, is collaborative to get that end goal in mind. Can you imagine if the football team turned on each other? I mean, just, just think about that for a moment. Imagine the running back tackles the quarterback on the same team. Imagine the punter turns around and kicks it the other way. Imagine the kicker grabs the ball and starts running for the touchdown of the other team. There would be no NFL if that was the case. But don't we do that in the church sometimes? We divide, devour and bite each other. We hurt each other. We, we don't resolve issues with one another. And that's why what Paul is saying here is so critical. You must be of the same mind toward one another. It doesn't mean you always agree. It doesn't mean you always have the same preferences, but it means that you strive for and work through the differences to promote that very unity. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 14 says, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. What unites us? It's Christ that unites us, and it's the expression of love and humility and gentleness and patience with one another that promotes it. And if you want to be part of an effective church, and you want to see God do something in our midst, and you want to see God's blessing upon your life, you have to work through differences with fellow believers and seek the unity of the church. Hold your finger here in Romans and go back to the book of Acts. I want to show you for just a moment the connection between this one-mindedness and the effectiveness of the church. Go back to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. And there's a, um, a few places in the book of Acts where there's this idea of one-mindedness that actually is linked to their effectiveness. Notice Acts chapter 2 verse 46. Remember Peter has preached this Pentecost sermon, and they've been pierced to the heart, and they've asked, what should they do? And Peter says, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now look at verse 46. It says, day by day, continuing with one mind. In the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Why was the early church effective? It's because they were one-minded. It's because they were committed to working through issues together. They were after the same thing. They were committed to the same cause. Go over to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, verse 32. It says, in the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. There it is. And not one of them claimed that anything belonging to them was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. Why? Why was abundant grace upon the early church? I think it's linked to the fact that they were committed to one another, one heart, one soul, diligent, preserving the unity. Go over to Acts chapter 5. <clears throat> 
Acts chapter 5, verse 12. It says, At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all in one accord in Solomon's portico. And all the more, look down, skip down to verse 14. It says, And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. Why? Why were there multiple believers added to their number? I think it's related to the fact that there was a oneness and a unity with each other within the early church. Go back to Romans chapter 12. I think that's what Paul has in mind. He has in mind this attitude of being of the same mind with one another. So let me ask you this morning, very practically, who are you out of fellowship with? Is there someone in this room, another fellow believer, maybe not here this morning, is there somebody that you are not in fellowship with, a broken relationship? Let me give you just a few implications as we wrap this point up. Let me just, you can write these down if you want, they're not on the slide, but just a few implications that... I encourage you to think about first, consider the cost of disunity. Consider the cost of disunity. One writer says, if you descend into disunity, you hand Satan a victory. Do you want to be complicit in that? Do you want to be complicit in providing Satan a foothold to sow his seeds of discord within, his, within the bride of Christ? Consider the cost Number two, here's another implication. Remember that spiritual safety comes through spiritual unity. Remember that spiritual safety comes through spiritual unity. There is protection here within the church. I'm not talking four walls. I'm talking about the unity of the church and the relationship. There's a a safety that comes with being in unified relationships with fellow believers. And those who are united are more difficult to be picked off. Christians who wander away from the church, Christians who choose not to participate as much anymore because of a broken relationship, put themselves at greater spiritual risk of being picked off. I just had a conversation with someone on Friday. Someone who's not been here quite a while. I said, you need to be here. You need to be here. Whatever's happened, whatever hurts, whatever issues, whatever, whatever problems are, are, are occurring there, whatever factions or frictions in your heart or whatever the pain might be, you've got to be here because you're putting yourself in spiritual danger when you set yourself outside of the church and you're not consistently a part of it. Third implication you can think through is be the first one to seek peace and reconciliation. Be the first one to seek peace and reconciliation. Have a race to repentance and win that race. Say, it's not my fault. Who cares? What's more important, you getting your way or Christ's church being unified for the glory of his name? What's more important? And then maybe a fourth implication is spend more time considering the evidence of grace in others than their weaknesses. Spend more time considering the evidences of grace in other believers rather than their weaknesses. And this is a problem for all of us. Let's just face it. All of us love to focus on each other's weaknesses. You got that issue going on. You're seriously, woefully weak in that area. You've offended me in that. You're not good at that. And yet there's evidences of grace 
in that person's life. Focus on those. Encourage them in those things. Well, there's a lot more that could be said about that. Those are some of the things I should have said last week, and I felt like it needed to be said this week. Here's the problem. Why do we have a hard time with this? It's because of pride. It's because of pride. And so for the rest of the verse, Paul's going to address that issue. So let me give you number 18. If we're going to have proper gospel-centered relationships, and if we're going to be a part of a church that is manifesting Christ in our relationships, then number 18, you need to have a humble nature. You need to have a humble nature. Now look at this middle phrase in verse 16. Look what it says. Be of the same mind toward one another. Here it is. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. What Paul's going to do here is he's going to confront us in our pride because our pride is what keeps us from doing this. Our pride is what keeps us from living with these kinds of relationships. And pride is the vice that lies at the heart of all of our selfish ambition. It's what lies at the heart of my selfish ambition and yours. It's that cancer that arose and destroys our associations. It's what weakens and destroys our relationships. In fact, let me just say it this way. If you're here this morning and you are out of fellowship with another believer, let me say guaranteed there is pride somewhere in that relationship. Your part, their part, maybe both parts. Pride will destroy our relationships with each other. And the issue is not do we have it. Of course we have it. The issue is where is it and how much of it? That's the issue each one of us have to wrestle with, not thinking, do I have pride or not? You do. So do I. So the issue is, how do we deal with it? And this is what Paul deals with here in the middle phrase in verse 16. He says, do not be haughty in your mind. Do not think more highly of yourself than you ought. Look up in verse 3. It's the same thing he says up in verse 3. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. This is a call to humility. Do not be haughty in your mind. The word haughty, hoopsalos, is a word that means high or exalted or lifted up or something that's, that's highly raised. In fact, the same word is used in Matthew 4, 8 of a mountain. Jesus, remember, he was tempted by the devil. The devil took him to a very high mountain. That's the same word. It's used literally of a high place, and it's used metaphorically of someone who's proud of themselves and someone who's conceited and someone who's full of themselves, someone who's thinking more highly of themselves than they ought to think. Paul says it has no place in the church. No place. One commentator says this way, he says, Our overly exalted opinion of ourselves, leading us to think that we are always right and others wrong, and that our opinions matter more than others, prevents the church from exhibiting the unity to which God calls her. And he's spot on. It is when we think we're right and the other person is wrong, and our opinions matter more, and our preferences matter more than someone else, that you have just sowed the seed of discord in a fertile soil. It's when you think your opinions matter more than others, that you've just let that first seed of disunity germinate in your own heart. Paul says, stop trying to always be right. Stop 
thinking too highly of yourself. Stop the pride. Stop being so full of yourself. I told you he was going to step on our toes. Sometimes in our home, this may shock you, but we have, we have some conflict. Pastors, believe it or not, have some conflict in their home. We, we actually have children, and um, sometimes in the mix of all of that between parents and kids and each other, there, there's some conflict. And so oftentimes in the midst of that, we'll just say, time out, listen, are you trying to be right or righteous? Are you trying to win or be winsome? And that has a way of just kind of diffusing the situation. Because most of us want to be right and most of us want to win. And this is what Paul's getting at here. He says, you have to know and realize that the thing that keeps you from unity within the church is likely your own pride and your desire to be right. That's what drives our selfish ambition. Joe said it earlier in his prayer. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble, James 4, 6. Proverbs 16, verse 18 says that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. I've been in enough marriage counseling situations in 20 years of ministry to see this played out right before us. Each person thinks they're right. Each person's convinced in their own mind that it's the other person's fault. They've shifted the blame to the other person, and pride has so blinded them to their own exalted view of themselves that they're at an impasse in their marriage relationship. And sometimes the same thing happens in our church. It's the other person's fault. They're wrong. Maybe but maybe you are too. It's a call to not be haughty, to not be selfishly ambitious, to not be high-minded about ourselves. Paul says, own up to that. Own up to your own high-mindedness and your haughtiness of spirit and confess it and deal with it. Spurgeon said it this way. He said, pride is a weed that is dreadfully rampant and it needs cutting down every week or else we should stand up to our knees in it. Are you cutting your pride down? Let me get real specific. Are you Are you unteachable? Someone comes to you and says, I see an issue, and we've got to work through this, and this is how you hurt me. Oh, no, not me. You're the one. Are you that unteachable? Have you blame shifted? It's what's been done since the beginning. Adam, the woman that you gave me, God, she made me do it. What about you, Eve? Oh, it wasn't me. It was the serpent who deceived me. That's what we do. We blame shift. Do you have a lack of admitting when you're wrong? Do you, do, you, do you tend to minimize your own faults and maximize the sins and shortcomings of others? It's all evidence of a haughty spirit. What's the antidote? The antidote is the next phrase in verse 16. He says, do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. 
The antidote to your pride, the antidote to my pride, the antidote to the very things that serve as a spiritual cancer within the church is to associate with the lowly. It's a word that means to be brought down, to be of a low degree or a low rank. And we're not quite sure if Paul has in mind here lowly things or lowly people. It could be either. If the word is neuter, it could refer to lowly things. And if you have a New American Standard Bible, you can see in the side margin there a little note that says an alternate reading could be to accommodate yourself to lowly things. That's a possibility. Where you're willing to do the humble tasks. You're willing to set up chairs and take chairs down. You're willing to take out the trash in your family. You're willing to clean bathrooms. You're willing to do all those things. It doesn't matter what your rank is. What, there's nothing beneath you. You're willing to do the lowly task. That's a possibility. But the word could also be a masculine word. And if it's a masculine word, then it refers to lowly people. Associate with lowly people. And if that's the case and you have an NIV, that's how it translated. Be willing to associate with people of low position. New King James says associate with the humble. The idea here is you show love to people toward all people, regardless of their rank, regardless of their position, regardless of their station in life. You don't think anyone is beneath you. That's the idea. We need to hear this. We need to hear this because, let's just admit it, we tend to gravitate to the people that we think are successful, the people that are powerful, the people that are prominent, the people that are wealthy. We tend to be drawn to those people, and we tend to categorize ourselves, how we relate to those people, and if we think someone is less than us or beneath us, well, they're not really worthy of my time. We don't like to hear that, but that's often how we rank ourselves within the church. Paul says there's no place for that. No place whatsoever. You associate with the lowly. You, you fellowship with anyone and everyone that God brings your way into the church. They're all believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord willing, and your job, if God brings them into your fellowship and puts you into relationship with them, is to fellowship and to enjoy it. Go over to James chapter 2. Let me show you how James says this. James chapter 2. <clears throat> so, so pointed James is here. Look at, look at James 2 starting in verse 1. He says, my brethren, do not hold your faith, verse 1 of James 2, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. Here it is. Don't start ranking people in how they look or how they dress or what some sort of perception of their status is. Paul or James says there's no place for that. No place for personal favoritism. No place for distinctions. Look at verse 2. Four gives an illustration. If a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes, and you say, oh, sit over here in a, in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or you sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? Look up. That's us. 
You think your status is better than someone else? You have a higher rank because of your portfolio or what kind of house you live in or your job? Really? Who? All of us. We're just the poor of this world and we're rich in faith because of God. Because of His sovereign grace. Verse 6. But you've dishonored the poor men. Is not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called. If, however, you're faithfully fulfilling the royal love according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Can't say it much clearer than that. No favoritism. No biases. No partiality. No tribalism. No clicks. This tends to get in our face a little bit because we, we like to divide up into our favorite groups. I hang out with these people because they're successful. I, I like these people because they're my, they're my age. I hang out with these people because they're my race. I hang out with these people because I'm educated like they're educated. These people are, and they have some status and some success, and so I'm going to hang out with them. Go back to Romans chapter 12. Paul says that has no place in the church. No place. None. There is not one person here today who is better than another person You are, if you are a believer, saved by the grace of God, and that's it. So do you treat each other that way? Does that come out in your relationships? Does that manifest itself in how you treat one another? There's one more, number 19. It's the last phrase in verse 16. We're going to call it a meek appraisal. A meek appraisal, a a humble appraisal of yourself. Look at the end of verse 16. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Kind of summarizes everything we're saying, isn't it? Do not be wise in your own estimation. Don't deem yourself superior in wisdom. Stop thinking that you are superior to other Christians in the way you think about them. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Go back to uh, Romans 11, verse 25. Same phrase used just a few verses earlier. Romans 11, verse 25. The exact same phrase. Paul says in verse 25 of chapter 11, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery that you, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. There it is. That a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Paul says in chapter 11, if you're a Gentile and you're saved by God, don't you dare become prideful because your salvation has come to you because of the rejection of the Jews. Don't become arrogant about that. Now fast forward to Romans 12 verse 16, same phrase. Do not be wise in your own estimation. It's a warning about pride and arrogance. It's a warning about thinking too highly of yourself. Maybe your favorite verses this morning are Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. You all know them well. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. You know what the next verse says? You know what verse 7 says? Do not be wise in your own eyes. 
Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Might want to add that to your favorites list. Don't be wise. In your own eyes, don't think of yourself more than you ought to think. Proverbs 26, verse 12 says this. Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than him. Ouch. You puffed up? Arrogant? Thinking your opinions and your preferences are the only right ones? You think you have all the answers? Solomon says, a fool has better hope than you do. You'll never enjoy true unity with the church and contribute to its harmony as long as you believe you're right. Always. I'm not talking about doctrinal convictions. We can talk about that. Of course, we need to agree on doctrinal convictions. That's not the issue here. The issue is... In your preferences and in your relationships and how you deal with each other, do you think you've got it all together? Unwilling to admit when you're wrong, unreceptive to criticism and reproof, not willing to ask for forgiveness? You just set yourself up for an inability to live in unity with fellow believers. And there will be a trail of broken relationships behind you. So let me give you a test. Let me just wrap this up. Are you humble? Let me give you a little test. You can write these down if you want, but or you can just listen. Am I gentle and patient with others? Am I gentle and patient with others? When it comes to conflict, when it comes to your relationships with one another, are you easily irritated or are you patient, gentle? Question number two. Do I see myself as no better than others? Do I see myself as no better than others? A humble person understands the sinfulness of their own heart. They they never see themselves as better than others, and they understand that they themselves are capable of the worst sins, save for the grace of God. So, do I see myself as no better than others? Question number three, do I talk about others only if it's good? Do I talk about others only if it's good? And if you have to say something bad, is it done because you want to encourage their growth and their maturity and their repentance? Or are you trying to run them down? Do I talk about others only if it's good? Next question. Am I thankful for reproof? Am I thankful for reproof? Are you thankful when someone says, brother, sister, I I love you so much, and it pains me, I've prayed about this, and I don't want to do this, but there's something I see in your life. Are you thankful for that? Or do the defenses immediately go up? Another question, do I have a teachable spirit? Do I have a teachable spirit? A humble person never arrives at the point where they think they know everything and they're always willing to be taught and they're always willing to learn and they're always willing to consider maybe where they've been wrong. Do you have a teachable spirit? Last, do I have a quickness in granting and asking for forgiveness? Do I have a quickness in granting and asking for forgiveness? humble person recognizes that they've been forgiven so much. And because they've been forgiven so much, 
they're willing to extend that same forgiveness immediately when it's asked for. Do you see how the gospel affects our relationships? Do you see how deep down the truth of Christ and what he's done in our life needs to pervade every nook and cranny of our hearts and every relationship that we're in? Well, next week, how do you deal with your enemies? How do you handle those who really hate you? You ought to come back. Let's pray. Father, we, we so need to hear this. We are quick to defend ourselves. We are quick to think we're always right. We're quick to believe our preferences and our opinions are always right. So, Father, we, we thank you for these marvelous truths that, that really get in our life and make us think hard about our pride. Lord, we, we ask and pray that you would reveal any of this to us today. We pray that you will enable us to effectively evaluate areas of our life where we've not really dealt with this. And, Lord, if there are broken relationships here today at our church, we ask and plead with you, Father, to do a work there, to, to mend those relationships, to, to bring them to a point of openness where they can be dealt with and the glory and the honor and the unity of the Lord Jesus Christ can pervade. We want that more than anything. Help us to realize that Christ and his kingdom is far more important than any of our personal preferences. And so, Lord, we commit these things to you in your name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.